Matthew 5, verse 5 today. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. I had a uh, professor at Westminster who explained to us the secret of being a great professor. And it was rather ingenious. He said the trick was to assign one textbook, but to teach out of another. And that way the students always assume you're a step ahead of them and they'll be overwhelmed by your brilliant, independent thoughts. So I wasn't feeling particularly brilliant this week, but I can employ that trick. I've given you guys pew Bibles and one single verse to look at. Uh, but I found myself not feeling particularly brilliant, that I resorted to more commentaries than, than usual, only to discover that Martin Lloyd-Jones has already said all the important things about this beatitude that could possibly be said. So if I say anything of value to you today, it's probably something that he said first, and in the spirit of meekness, I am admitting this to you up front and saying that you could just skip this sermon and go home and read that chapter in his brilliant studies in the Sermon on the Mount. However, I'm also assuming that most of you are too lazy to actually do that, so I'm going to go ahead and preach this anyway. So we continue our slow walk through the Beatitudes. And two weeks ago, Jesus told us that the happiest people are the poor in spirit. And then last week, he told us that the happiest people... They know how to mourn. And those were pretty tough pills to swallow. Uh, These Beatitudes are kind of counterintuitive, aren't they? And today, he kind of turns the screws a little bit tighter by commending meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, once again, that seems like strange counsel to me, because I'm not sure I've ever actually seen this work in reality. Uh, It's a strange command. Uh, back on New Year's Eve, we, we went to my brother's house, and, uh, house and we, we always order Chinese food. It's part of our tradition for most of us. Georgia goes to bed early and stays home, but uh, for the rest of us, we go down and have fun. And uh, I stole Grace's fortune, not her fortune cookie, just the fortune out of it, uh, because I, I wanted to save it as a potential sermon illustration. And, and, and typical fortune cookie wisdom, it posed a rhetorical question. It says, is your attitude worth catching? Uh, I'll say as as an aside that the answer to that question is typically no. But uh, in my mind, I couldn't help but reword it in my head as, is your beatitude worth catching? Clever, right? See what I did there? And I thought of it that way because all of these blessings begin with a sort of posture, a sort of attitude that Jesus is commending. And honestly, they seem to be kind of blah, don't they? Are any of these beatitudes worth catching? I say this, I, I, look, I realize that each one of them comes with a, a promise, right? And that's cool. But on the face of it, in the immediate future, none of these are particularly appealing. And this one, I think, is even worse than the last two in, in some ways. Lloyd-Jones points out, I think rightly, that these Beatitudes are kind of escalating in their difficulty and intensity. And they are related to each other. In other words, being truly poor in spirit will lead you to mourning, And truly mourning will lead you to meekness. But meekness is not an exciting word, is it? I mean, by definition, meek people aren't exciting or excitable 
in our minds, right? Who wants to be meek? I mean, I guess some people might aspire to be Meek Mills, the rapper. He has a lot of money anyway, but um, other than young, aspiring Philadelphia hip-hop artists, who wants to be Meek? I would venture to say no one. Part of the misfortune, I think, arises from the simple fact that meekness rhymes with weakness, and we tend to conflate the two in modern English, don't we? Apart from scripture, and this verse especially, the only time I can think of hearing this word appear in the pop culture that came to my mind was in The Wizard of Oz. Because when Dorothy comes before the wizard, not the guy behind the curtain, but you know the smoking, flaming image on the wall that looks like a terrifying talking pipe organ, he announces himself as, I am Oz, the great and powerful. Who are you? And Dorothy responds with, I'm Dorothy, small and meek. None of us want to be small and meek, do we? Including Dorothy in that moment. Dorothy spends the entire film being led around by various weird characters because she is small and meek. She's helpless, she's vulnerable, she's emotional, she is constantly in need of rescuing. Who wants that job description? Uh, A distant cousin of mine recently sent by email an old family video that he took 20 years ago. And it was taken at my Aunt Marie's house, my great aunt, and there are a lot of people in the video who are gone now, and so I think that's why he sent it around. But the kids wanted to watch it several times over, because what amazed them most was not all the people that they missed or anything like that, but how dreadfully skinny and scrawny I was. (laughs) One of my girls called me nerdy. Now, I'm not always proud of my physical shape as of today, but I never want to go back to that look. I hated my high school self precisely because I looked like a pushover. I looked meek, and I felt meek, and meekness is not what I was going for. I was just thankful when I slightly filled out a little bit more by the time I met Georgia two years later. Growing a beard helped too, but I don't want to be meek anymore. Who would? I was bad at sports, I was clumsy, I couldn't ride a bike. And if that's meekness, I could do without it. But even if we're more charitable and say, okay, it doesn't always have to mean that, we could try to put a positive spin on it. I think even when we're trying to be nice about the word meekness, I think most of us consider meek to be synonymous with nice. If I have to make a mental picture in my mind of what meekness looks like, I think of Mr. Rogers. Now, my generation, we all watched him, and maybe we even kind of liked the show on some level, but we all kind of felt like he was a loser. Am I right? He was like a caricature of niceness. He was nice to the point of being weird. Meekness, in my mind, kind of just, he wears a cardigan and he plays with trolleys. Now, we may like meek people. We may even prefer meek people in a lot of situations, but they don't get real far in life. Nice guys finish last. Life rewards those who go out and get what they want. That's what the real world looks like. You can't find a spouse. You can't find a job. You can't get a house. You can't get a car. You can't do anything in this world without showing some spine because the world is full of competition. In modern usage, meekness is synonymous with being wimpy and spineless, and the meek don't get far in life. Now, sometimes it can look like the meek are getting their way, but that's usually an illusion. 
It's usually a form of manipulation. It's more like the squeaky wheel getting the grease in my experience. Now take, for instance, Gwen. I love that girl. Gwen, where are you? Is she hiding back there? Where is she? Oh, she's hiding right here. Hi, sweetheart. I love you. I do love her, but she's a punk. I tell her this all the time. And yet so many of you tell me how enamored you are with that little punk. She's got more people wrapped around her little finger, and that's not meekness. That kid is the most brazen child I have ever produced or met. And if you know the rest of my kids, you know that's saying something. So, given that, you have to wonder, what does Jesus actually mean by this? There are many people in the world who think of Jesus as a first century Mr. Rogers. Just swap the cardigan and loafers for a tunic and sandals, you get the picture. Now, I think such a view is silly, even blasphemous. Yet we may end up imitating that false picture of Jesus, Mr. Rogers with a beard. I remember when I was in college reading John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart. He's not right about everything, but it made a big impact on me. One of the things he observed is that most of the men you meet in church, if you had to summarize what they look like, he said they look bored. And what he meant was that he thinks most men don't think of their walk with Christ as an adventure. And many men seem to feel like being a Christian means being nice. To the point that wimpiness almost becomes a Christian virtue. And I think there's a danger here for women, too. Because if meekness is basically just Christianese for niceness then women, who are usually more nice than us men anyway, and tend to be more pleasant than us and more polite, uh, then acting meek in that sense comes more naturally to them. And I suspect that is why, statistically, more women attend church in America than men. Because if niceness is all we're going for, they're better at it. So if meekness is just a natural disposition, something doesn't make sense. The Bible often uses terms a little differently than we do doesn't it? And sometimes we use words that are completely divorced from their original dictionary definitions. So once again, I think we need to define our terms. What does meekness actually mean? What is the biblical definition of meekness? And what does Jesus mean by it? Because we keep using this word and I do not think we know what it means. Now, in English, most dictionaries define this word very broadly. If you Google it and you kind of get the Oxford definition or whatever, the results will tell you that it means quiet, Gentle, easily imposed upon, or submissive. In other words, a pushover. And it gives like 30 synonyms. A few of them are pleasant. Mostly they're not. Not very flattering words. And, and then it gives you the opposite definition. What's the antonym, right? The opposite is to be, of meekness, is to be impatient, assertive, and overbearing. Well... Neither of those extremes sound very positive, do they? If the only options are being a pushover or a jerk, I think I prefer to be a jerk. Or I have to hope that there's a middle way somewhere. And all that is to say that our modern usage of the word is not very helpful to understanding the verse. Modern English has a hard time understanding the concept, and that's why we picture Mr. Rogers. So it's probably better to look at the scripture itself, right? Let scripture interpret scripture. The word in this verse is price or praus. If you look it up in a Greek dictionary, it means mild, 
gentle, kind, forgiving, benevolent, humane. So already it's a much less loaded term, isn't it? It has a certain nobility almost to it. It shows up a few other places in the New Testament as well. One of the places it shows up is in Matthew 21, which is the triumphal entry. And the ESV translates the word there as humble. It appears also in 1 Peter 3, verse 4, and the ESV there translates it as gentle. Uh, There's a related word, prostis, which would mean meekness. Uh, but it can also be translated as forbearance and gentleness or kindness or benevolence. It's actually the same word that can be translated as gentleness and is translated as gentleness in Galatians 5 as one of the fruits of the Spirit. So this is not wimpiness or niceness. New Testament meekness paints a picture of gentleness and humility. Meekness is a form of graciousness and generosity. And one of the synonyms that caught my eye the most was this idea of forbearance, because then you could translate this verse as, blessed are those who forbear, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, what does it mean to forbear? To forbear is basically to show patience and to be very tolerant, to tolerate even the intolerable, and to choose not to act even when everything inside of you is screaming to. Meekness, by that definition, means holding your fire and being gentle when you don't want to be. In fact, in classical Greek, this was the same word they used for taming a horse. They would say that if a horse has been broken and can now be safely ridden, it is now meek. So the Greek sense has little or nothing to do with weakness because a tame horse is still a horse. It still has power, but the power has been harnessed. And the same applies to meekness in the Christian. Perhaps the best summary of meekness I found came of all places from that great Canadian theologian, Dr. Jordan Peterson. I know, he's not a Christian, although he has some really good insight on this very beatitude. He says, you know, he pointed out that meek doesn't mean meek here, meaning not in the modern usage. He says the verse always struck his ears as as saying, like, if you're so weak that you're harmless, then things will go well for you. And that's clearly not true. And so he said it always bothered him. Meek can't be the right word there. So he read a few commentaries and discovered that meekness doesn't mean weakness, but strength that has been restrained. And so the translation he came up with is this. Those who have weapons and know how to use them, but still keep them sheathed, will inherit the earth. I like that. And when you think of it that way, you realize that weak people can't possibly even be meek. One podcaster I listened to defined meekness as power under control. I liked that too. But if you have no power, there's nothing to control, is there? You can't restrain impotence. If I tell my kids... I could easily beat them in Mario Kart. I just choose not to. They will rightfully laugh because they know that I'm terrible at that game. If I announce to you this morning, I've decided not to run for president in 2024. And I've also decided not to try out for the Olympics. Who here would be surprised or disappointed, right? You know, like nobody. That's news to nobody. I have no ability to do those things. I cannot forbear to do them. I just straight up can't do them. 
There's a difference. That is not meekness because it's not a choice at all. It is simply weakness, weakness or powerlessness. I can only show meekness if I have the power but choose not to use it. I can't restrain a power I don't have. Lloyd-Jones says that meekness is not the same as indolence or flabbiness or niceness or even an eagerness to avoid conflict. No, the biblical picture of meekness is power under control. It's keeping your sword in its sheath. Now, when you consider it that way, a lot of things could be the opposite of meekness. But I think I kind of came to think of the primary opposite of meekness as being defensiveness. It's using your strength to defend yourself and your honor. And when you consider that in the context of the Beatitudes we've already studied, it becomes clear where the biggest challenges are going to come with this. Uh, Lloyd-Jones spends a lot of time explaining what makes this teaching so hard, but perhaps the hardest thing is that meekness is something that is directed towards our fellow man. In a sense, the first two Beatitudes can be done privately. To be poor in spirit That's an attitude before God. Uh, It means knowing that I am empty, that I have nothing to offer, right? Uh, To mourn the sin in the world and in myself, right? That too can be done sort of privately before God. You can't see my inward grief over my sin. It's kind of private between God and I. But this beatitude is directing us outward to the people around us. It means letting other people see the real you, I don't have to be told to be meek before an almighty God. I I can't be super defensive in front of him because he knows me too well, right? I have no power before God. I can't choose to be meek with him. I have no power worth restraining in front of God, right? But what about the person sitting next to you in the pew? We may know and be okay with saying that we are sinners and that we are unworthy of God's favor. We can even say that out loud. But we really don't like when other people point that out to us. We are very defensive people. John Stott says that he can admit being a a sinner, but if someone else says so after church, his inclination is to punch him in the nose. (laughs) Lloyd-Jones says it this way. He says, I say of myself that I am a sinner. But instinctively, I do not like anyone else to say that I am a sinner. This is more humbling and more humiliating than everything that has gone before. It is to allow other people to put the searchlight upon me instead of me doing it myself. In other words, private confession is easier than public confession. And vague sins are easier to talk about than specific ones. And no one likes being accused or having their sins pointed out by their fellow mortals. We hate being watched and we hate being criticized, and we especially hate it from fellow sinners. We can confess our own depravity to God, but we defend ourselves in the court of public opinion. But defensiveness is the opposite of meekness. Meekness means giving up the urge to constantly defend yourself. Meekness doesn't try to preserve our reputation. The meek don't rush to defend themselves. Because they know that they're far worse than what everybody thinks. The meek are the ones who are so poor in spirit and have so mourned their sin that no mistreatment, no unkind words could possibly surprise them because they deserve worse. The meek know they're worse than whatever they're being accused of. And while the meek will always use their strength to defend and serve others, 
they do not waste time defending themselves. Now that's a very countercultural message, isn't it? Think of it. In an age of social media, we all have a curated version of ourselves. We don't intentionally post bad selfies, right? We edit ourselves. Nothing about our culture encourages meekness at all. We want our public image to be spotless. We're told to express ourselves and to make our voices heard. And we're convinced that we are entitled to the benefit of the doubt. And even unbelievers will say, well, no one can judge me but God. I think it was Nicki Minaj said it most recently, right? That's not meekness. Lloyd-Jones says that meekness comes from a true view of yourself that expresses itself in your attitude toward others. In other words, when you have seen what you really are, when you are poor in spirit and have mourned your sin, you stop defending yourself and you don't punch back anymore. And that's a true message that even the church needs to think about as an institution because I think we can have a tendency to be combative with the culture and sometimes that's understandable and sometimes we can do it well. But I think a lot of times we do it wrong, and even Lloyd-Jones talks about it. We'll band together to fight some certain element kind of thing, like we think we're going to do this ourselves. We're not called to engage in every street fight, though, and especially not to defend our image. The true disciple of Jesus knows that they have nothing worth defending, and they don't race to their own defense. That's not weakness. It's humility. It's graciousness in the face of adversity. Now, I want to say, and it's worth noting, Jesus doesn't pull this idea out of thin air. He actually is adapting a line from Psalm 37. You don't have to turn there if you don't like, but I'm going to read just a few verses of it, verses 8 through 11. He says, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. What you see here, this is one of David's psalms, and what you see here is that David equates meekness with patience. Those who inherit the land are the meek, and the meek are defined as those who wait on the Lord. You don't defend yourself because you know that God will do it for you. Okay, that's great. We could use an example or two of what meekness should look like. What does power under control look like? I think of a few caricature type things where you could think of this. Think of Arnold Schwarzenegger in Jingle All the Way playing the doting father who's trying, you know, like that kind of thing. Like, all right, that's power under control, him like playing with the kid, right? It's a terrible movie, but it's a good example of a picture of it anyway. Every dad who's ever worn makeup and done a tea party with his little girls knows what it's like to restrain your power to an extent. Georgia thought the example of, of, well, the Hansel's late dog, Bob. Bob the church dog, because back when our our bunnies were born, uh, Gwen didn't know how to really be gentle with them enough, and so Georgia arranged a play date to go visit the Hansels and visit Bob. Because even though Bob is big enough to eat Gwen, he was meek. Bob could handle her abuse and still be sweet about it. 
So you can see little examples like that, but the Bible also has many examples, but there are two very clear ones. Only two people in Scripture are literally labeled as meek. And the first is Moses. Uh, If you were to look at the book of Numbers, chapter 12, verse 3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. That's quite a statement. Now, think about what we know about Moses. We know that Moses had direct access to God. Probably more than any other Old Testament character, he's the closest thing to a picture of Christ in that he essentially acted as the prophet, priest, and king. Uh, yes, Aaron was a priest, but it was you know Moses who goes up on the mountain to receive the, the word directly from God. He intercedes on the people's behalf. He's playing like all of these roles. He's probably the greatest man who ever lived in the Old Testament. But he was a humble man in a lot of ways because he had given up the privileges of palace life. Later, during his leadership of Israel, when he was confused, he talked to his father-in-law and took advice from him. He appointed helpers to, to help him take care of things because he couldn't do everything. And there were even times where he could be seemingly overly timid. But the point is that he never defended himself. Even when he kills the Egyptian, he does it because he's attacking one of his own people, right? And in fact, even this line about his being super meek, right? This line comes in a a chapter where Moses is facing opposition from his own siblings who are undermining his leadership. Aaron and Miriam are, are undermining him, and it seems almost like this was written mostly to explain why God had to come down in the next verse to defend Moses from the slander, because Moses wouldn't defend himself. He sits back. He keeps his sword sheathed. Moses isn't perfect. I mean, he did lose his temper once or twice, but even then, at the end of his life, he ultimately accepts God's judgment. He never even gets to go to the promised land, which means his entire life's work never saw consummation. But he didn't complain, and he doesn't spend his time blaming the stubborn Israelites for making him lose his cool. He never jumps to defend himself. That's meekness. So that's a good example. But of course, we have an even better one, in the new and better Moses, the only man who was perfectly meek. And that would be Jesus himself. Listen to what Jesus says of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, this is the same word, I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know, no one could possibly have been more meek than Jesus because no one has ever had more power and no one has ever been more under control. Jesus' humiliation, his, his entire earthly existence is the definition of meekness. What we call even the good life, you have to figure, right? What we would call a good life, a wealthy life, is a significant step down for him. I thought about this just as an example, as George and I were discussing it. We thought, like, how many meals did Jesus eat on earth, right? Probably a lot. How many of them were subpar? 
I mean, food at that time was not at its most developed. Not many spices were available, right? I bet some meals were just kind of thrown together. I bet sometimes the meat was tough. I bet you sometimes things were a little off. I bet the servings were small. And even at its best, nothing that we offered could possibly match what he was used to, right? Did Jesus ever once complain about a meal? Not that I know of. Did he ever make his family feel stupid because he was too good for them? Did he ever show resentment because his friends were kind of lame? Did he ever throw a punch or draw a sword? No. In fact, when Peter drew a sword in Gethsemane, Jesus literally tells him to sheathe it. Put it away. Don't come to my defense. Now, Jesus isn't a pushover, but he ain't known for his temper either. He's the ultimate embodiment of power under control. And the only times we ever see Jesus angry is when he's angry for someone else. Like he gets kind of angry with the disciples for keeping the little kids away. And he gets angry when his father is disrespected, right? And that's when he throws the fit in the temple. But when does he ever worry about public opinion regarding himself? When does he ever act defensive? And think about us in contrast, like we leave negative reviews on Yelp and Google when a business disappoints us, right? And we always tend to think of like, if if we receive lousy service, that's like a personal insult, right? But think about this, compared to heaven, all of our beds are too hard, all of our food is bland, the drinks are weak, the weather sucks, the scenery is drab, the music is crappy, the cities aren't safe, and the company's no great shakes either, If Jesus left a Google review of earth, you would expect it to be pretty negative, right? And yet Jesus seems to enjoy it, doesn't he? He's actually accused sometimes of spending too much time with the sinners, eating and drinking and having fun with those losers. His critics feel like, oh, you have no self-respect? But Jesus is meek. He doesn't despise us or look down on his people. He's not a complainer. He's less defensive than we are. Think of how ridiculous that is. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He is weak and meek and lowly of heart. So we have this perfect picture of meekness. But what does it get us? Jesus took it all the way to the cross, right? Well, the promise Jesus gives in this verse is that the meek will inherit the earth. That's quite a promise. And it's immediately obvious that this promise is not for the here and now. In fact, I would say that almost all of these promises in these Beatitudes are eschatological, meaning they're fulfilled in glory. And we know this because it's obvious the meek don't win territorial wars. If Russia invades Ukraine this week, as some people fear... This will not be meekness on display. Vladimir Putin is many things, but I don't think meek is on the list. No empire is built by meek leadership, and yet Jesus says that in the end, the meek shall inherit the earth. And I want you to notice that that's actually Jesus expanding on the promise of Psalm 37, because David said that the meek will inherit the land, And Jesus ups the ante and says, actually, they'll inherit the earth. 
The promise is unlimited. Essentially, what he's saying is the meek can be patient in part because everything that they are denied today will eventually be theirs. Everything you see is included in the inheritance. And perhaps the coolest takeaway from this promise, and it was talked about a little bit during Sunday school today, is that the earth will be part of glory. Regardless of whatever you hear in the news, the world is not doomed. Everything you see will be glorified and made perfect. The earth doesn't just vanish and go away. We don't go to live in the clouds and play harps. The earth is the inheritance of God's people. Jesus' disciples stand to inherit every square inch of the map. Everything you see, every place you've ever traveled, is your inheritance. The world is your oyster, if you're among the meek. I don't know about you, but I kind of struggle with this one. I think it was a James Bond movie, The World is Not Enough. I disagree. The earth is quite a prize. But meekness, that's rough. Uh, I'm very quick to defend myself. And I'm very good, as many of us are, at curating an image of myself. And I resent people who slight me or poke holes in that image. I am not very meek. Even if I'm outwardly meek and forbearing, I am often raging inside. I just vent those feelings to Georgia later, unless she's the cause of it. And then I'm really stuck. But... If Jesus had no reason to, meet, to be meek, he was really good at it. It wasn't weakness, but he was the meekest man who ever lived. I have every reason to be meek, and yet I'm embarrassingly proud and arrogant and defensive. So i got to work on this. Because if the prize is the entire earth, I think it's worth getting better at it, don't you? And sadly, because pride has no limits, the application of this little lesson has no limits either. And so I thought, okay, application time. How can we be more meek? It starts off sounding like not very much of a a good thing, but it sounds more noble and more beautiful the more we talk about it. Who wants to be meek now compared to the beginning of the message, right? It's getting better. So the trick is to figure out then what your power is and learn to restrain it. If meekness is power under control... We need to know what our power is and stop using it. We need to learn to sheathe our sword. Well, all right, some of you are going to be thinking to yourselves, well, I don't really have a lot of power. So let's start with the kids. How can you be meek, children? You don't think you have much power, but you do. You have the power to manipulate your parents. Consider Gwen. And... You have the power to make their lives difficult. You have the power to fight with your siblings. You have the power to create messes. You have the power to torture the pets. Lord knows you have the power to complain. Well, being meek might mean doing your chores even when they're unfair and too hard. Might mean refusing to fight with your siblings even when they're wrong. It might mean not complaining. Parents... You feel powerless some of the time, but you have power. You have the power to scream at your kids and to criticize them and exasperate them. Not that I speak from experience. But meekness means showing patience with them and knowing and remembering that you were a kid once too. 
Husband and wives, do I even have to go into the countless weapons at your disposal? But if you want to be meek, you must learn not to use them. It means not holding grudges or insisting on getting your way. If you have a job, if you have any friends, if you spend any time interacting with human beings at all, you have power to ruin someone's day or to demand attention. You have the power to tip well or poorly. You have the power to complain about the service. You have the power to speak kindly to that IRS agent on the other end of the phone, knowing that it's not really her fault. Every day, in hundreds of interactions, we have the power to make probably dozens of people miserable, but that means we also have the power to not do that. And not only that, we need a new mindset, because many of us, even when we are outwardly meek, are inwardly screaming. And meekness is an inward attitude, and the sin, therefore, is often internal as well. But to practice meekness, truly, is to remember who we are, that we are desperate sinners who Jesus had to die for. So what right do we have to be arrogant? This is not a call to be weak or cowardly. It's a call to believe that God will defend you, And it's faith that he will vindicate you. Now, as we bring it to a close, I'm going to say, of course, that we don't do this perfectly. And the fact is, measured fairly, you will never be meek enough to inherit the earth. But here's the good news. And there's always good news. The most blessed man who ever lived was also the meekest. And he was so meek that he went to the cross to die for self-seeking parasites like us. And now, he stands to inherit everything. Now, I'm currently reading a murder mystery where a woman kills her great aunt before a law goes into effect that would end up costing her the inheritance. We don't have to do that. We don't have to take the drastic steps because Jesus already died. In a sense, we already killed him. And he already rose again. But the promise is now that if we take refuge in him... Even though we'll never match him in his meekness, we still get everything he gets. I found myself resting in the definition of an inheritance. An inheritance is receiving something that someone else already earned. And the earth by rights belongs to Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus, he will teach you meekness and one day the earth will be yours too. So we can put the sword away. Be gentle, be humble, be meek, and trust that Jesus will take care of things and God will get your back and defend you. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. And we acknowledge, Lord, without going into a ton of detail right now, Lord, that we are not naturally meek. Lord, we are quick to come to our own defense Lord, we, we, we build a public image of ourselves. We defend that image. Lord, we are, we are secretive toward each other. We are resentful of our fellow man, Lord, our, our brothers and sisters, our friends even. Lord, forgive us. We know that we will never match Jesus in his meekness, but we thank you for the example that he set, Lord, and that it's not just an example, Lord. It's something that is already fulfilled and that we don't have to earn the inheritance but only receive it. Teach us to imitate Jesus, Lord.
We ask these things in his name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join us in singing the doxology. <laughs> 